Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Welcome to Philanthropy SA. This is a podcast about and for the philanthropic community in San Antonio and South Texas. We introduce organizations and people who are making an impact in the community. Beneficent Financial is proud to sponsor this podcast, and it is our hope that you enjoy this conversation about the impact we can have. The goal is to edify and inspire. Now, please join our host, Dan Rebman. Hi, welcome to Philanthropy SA. I'm your host, Dan Rebman, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Judith Bell, the CEO at Providence Place today. Judith, thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So we're going to get into all the good stuff about Providence Place in a little bit, but I want to start out by just uh, letting our audience know about you and what brought you to San Antonio and what got you into philanthropy. Well, the succinct answer is that God put me here. That's a good one. And that's a good one. I don't need any uh, any further explanation, but um, I actually started out in academia. And the label runs with scissors probably fit me best in my younger years. Um, and I left academia. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And so I've been in nonprofit work for over 30 years now. Very good. Um, and how long have you been with Providence Place? I've been with them for 13 years. Yeah, I knew it had been a while. It has. So in the interest of fair disclosure, I should tell the audience I'm a past board member and board chair at Providence Place. So, you know, this is not uh, – this is an organization with which I'm well acquainted. But uh, there have been a lot of neat things going on for the last couple of years, and that's why I wanted to make sure uh, to get Judith on here. So what did you do uh, in between academia and uh, Providence Place? I actually worked for several uh, nonprofits. I did one in Monroe, Louisiana, which is northeast Louisiana, um, working with domestic violence. And so I did a lot of work around that for about 10 years. I worked for a national organization, Volunteers of America. We did a lot of mental health, early head start, um, work and things just change and god says you're finished here in louisiana and i uploaded an old resume for this job 13 years ago and here i am there you go so when we're looking around at you know what brought you here what what made you decide to uh you know do this kind of work as opposed to when you left academia you know going into the business world you know, that's a great question, and I thought a lot about that before today. And I think I learned at a very young age that I could be a voice for people who didn't have a voice or couldn't find their voice. And my dad just instilled that in me, that I had a strong enough, a loud enough, bold enough voice to do nonprofit work. And I've been working with survivors of trauma pretty much my whole professional career. Gotcha. Well, that is definitely a group that needs advocates and needs help and, and that type of thing. And so we're going to talk about kind of where Providence Place fits into that role. So what would you do uh, or what would you say is kind of what Providence Place does? You know, um, we have a unique history. 
And we have always been an agency for 128 years that has stood in the gap for services for individuals and communities throughout Texas. And that's what we continue to do. We see ourselves as a stronghold for individuals, families, and organizations that experience trauma. We've been doing that ever since 1895 when we were, when we were founded and that's who we are. It's who we will always be. Gotcha. So what kind of services does Providence Place provide? Right now, we are uh, have narrowed down into victims of crime, trauma survivors. We do a lot of therapy, uh, therapeutic counseling, case management, and we're adding a new dimension um, within the next six months is trauma coaching. So several of us are going through a certification program right now to become trauma coaches, and that will just add to a new dimension for us. We also, instead of just serving individuals, we want to begin serving organizations um, whose employees have their own personal trauma triggered because of the work that they do. And we've actually been doing a pilot with a local nonprofit here um, with their employees who have been triggered because of the work that they do and are receiving great results from that. Understood. So um, my introduction to the term trauma-informed care was, you know, through uh, my time on the board there. Um, And I was wondering if that's something you could explain to our audience when people say – because I've seen it in other organizations as well. It's kind of a – I hate to use the word buzzword because it sounds like cliche or bad. But, you know, it's it's certainly a topic that is, you know, uh, emerged a lot in the last few years. And so what – when people say that, you know – they engage in trauma-informed care. What does that mean? Well, I do think it's still a buzzword. And I think there are people in organizations across the country who say they are trauma-informed care. But it's our culture. We are non-judgmental. We meet people where they are. We treat people with grace. Um, we don't want people having to tell their story over and over and over again because that's just not fair. Um, it can be healing, but it can also be um, scary to tell it over and over again. So it's part of our culture. Uh, Grace is our first core value, Uh, being authentic, and that's the work that we do. We do authentic, grace-filled work. And for us, that's what trauma-informed care means. It's that non-judgmental, gracious space that we can hold with people as they learn uh, a new path forward, explore new opportunities, and have their spirits restored. As an organization, um, I know once upon a time, Providence Place was called Methodist Mission Home. It was involved in different missions, different provided different services at different points over that storied uh, legacy that you mentioned earlier. Um, but I'm curious, you know, where, what's the relationship now between Providence Place and either the Methodist Church or other churches, you know, along those lines? Well, I think early on, a lot of people thought we were an official program of the Methodist Church. And we have never been an official program. We have received funding from individual Methodist churches. Um, and we still, it's part of our history. Um, you know, others may not know that we were um, formed out of a brothel. And that brothel partnered with Travis Park Methodist Church. 
and that brothel was turned it brought into a home for wayward girls. And so that's, you know, that's a great story right there. And so we would not be true to ourselves if we didn't have grace somewhere <laughs> in our, our core values and the beliefs and philosophies that we, that we have. We still, um, receive funding from the Methodist Church. You do not have to be Methodist to come to work for us or to receive services from us. Uh, you know, we follow that non-discrimination policy, uh, to its, you know, to its fullest. We want to serve any of God's children who need services to find restoration and hope. Understood. And yeah, I was wondering how long it was going to take before we started talking brothels here. So, you know, I, I knew it was going to come up. I just didn't know, you know, it's uh, for the record, it's almost eight minutes in before the, before the, I thought it was going to be sooner, to be honest with you. So. I, you know, but it's part of our founding story. And oh, you no, no. have to it's tell great. that story. No other nonprofit has a brothel. As part of its founding story. Indeed. Well, why don't we get just – not that we want to separate on this, but I do want you to tell the, the story real quickly of Madame Valina, if you don't mind, and kind of walk through that and how it went from brothel into Home for Wayward Girls. Absolutely. You know I love this story. As do I. Um, Madame Valino, Mary Valino, had a house of ill repute in downtown San Antonio, uh, and she had that home for that brothel for several years. Um, there are a couple of variations of the story. The one I choose to tell, and I prefer, is that she had lost her daughter and was wandering around just aimlessly heartbroken about that and came upon a street revivalist. And at that point, uh, she turned her life over to Christ and began partnering with um, the Travis Park Methodist Church. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that church back in 1895 when the uh, madam walked into the, the Sunday worship service. Um, but together, they transformed that brothel into a home for wayward girls, and she started rescuing young women off the the streets of the red light district way back in 1895. She had to be a dreamer. She had to be courageous because that just wasn't a female role back yeah, then. No, absolutely. And then uh, over time, you know, the, the I know for a long time, um, adoption was a key component of what went on at Providence Place. And, uh, um, but um, I don't think, is that still something that you all do or is that something that's Yes. Not as much. Yes, we still do adoptions, um, although the adoption world has changed dramatically over the over the years since the 1970s. Um, historically, that's the same across the nation. It's just not for us. It is general adoption statistics. You could see a real big decline in the mid 70s for you know for that. But we still do adoption work. Um, primarily, right now, most of our adoptions are done through the child welfare system. So we place children um, in foster homes, foster to adopt, or straight adoption right now. Gotcha. So all these different programs and, and all of this, you know, means that your mission has changed over time and some of the things that you're doing and, and that type of thing. Um, and then there's been a big, exciting recent change here related to 
um, your facilities and that type of thing. Why don't you walk us through some of that? Sure. We uh, were in uh, currently located and still housed right now uh, in northwest San Antonio on Whitby Road, just right outside the medical center, 23, 24 acres. We have recently sold that property and are moving to really close to 1604-281. We will be much more centralized, and um, our clients, uh, people who come to us, will have easy, far easier access for us right now. And that's important because we have big plans and uh, big dreams uh, for how we move forward in the future. As I said, we're always going to serve victims of crime. Um, trauma survivors. That includes children who have been abused and neglected, uh, any partner violence, um, and just general uh, victims of, of crime and the trauma that they suffer be- uh, because of that. Um, we're going to do it a little bit differently than what we have. We uh, have been providing residential services for 128 years. We are stepping away from residential services. Uh, we serve over 4,000 people in the community every year, and that just seems to me uh, stepping away is a uh, stronger stewardship model than um, keeping residential services and serving only a handful of people versus serving in the community and 4,000 people. And so that's really exciting for us. Very scary, but very exciting. So where do these services get provided? Most of our services actually are provided in partnership with other nonprofits or organizations uh, across the uh, the city. Um, anything anywhere from churches to schools to Head Starts to early Head Starts to housing developments um, where people are hurting. That's where we. That's where we go. Uh, one of our largest funders right now uh, is a parenting development program. We give out over 150, 200,000 diapers every year to young families who are struggling financially to meet that, uh, to meet those needs for, for that. Plus, give them uh, the educational support, familial support that they that they need so um, so badly. Yeah, no, that's a. That's a, as any parent of a young one knows, you know, you can never have too many diapers. So that's a, a good thing. No, and moving forward, we really are creating a system uh, as we move from where we are now to the new location that will el- eliminate some of the barriers for young families. Um, we do want to have a sleeping pods for someone who has a child who has cried for three nights straight. And as long as they're one of our clients, they can come in. Um, that mom or dad or both can take a take a nap. And we will have a drop-in center for our client's children where they can take a nap, go to therapy, attend case management, or a coaching session, and not have a two-year-old crawling underneath their feet and having their attention divided. Right. Well, this sounds like a good point for us to go back and uh, hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back with Judith Bell from Providence Place.
Many of you out there care deeply about wanting to make an impact on the world around you. You want to help take care of the people and organizations that are important to you. And we understand that because we feel the same way. Beneficent Financial wants to help you. Our mission is to help people like you with professional, individualized financial advice achieve their objectives. Whether your financial legacy will stay within your family or benefit the community at large, we are able to help. Call Beneficent Financial today, 210-999-5511. In addition to traditional wealth management, we offer philanthropic services such as direct donations of required minimum distributions, donor-advised funds, and foundations. Call 210-999-5511 or go online to beneficentfinancial.net. Let us help you do well so you can do good. Securities offered through Momentum Independent Network, member SIPC slash FINRA. Welcome back. This is Dan Redman. I'm the host of Philanthropy SA and joined by Judith Bell from Providence Place here, who's the CEO there. Um, and they've been going through this amazing transition in terms of uh, – changing up some of the services that they provide and their location and all kinds of things. And so what I'd like to do now, Judith, is kind of take a step back. And after going through what you've gone through so far um, with this, if somebody is listening to this and they may be, you know, an executive director or CEO or um, somebody else affiliated with another nonprofit, you know, what do you wish you knew 24 months ago before this whole process began? Oh man, that's a loaded uh, question for for that. Um, you know, I wished that I had known. Um, I would say even further back that significant change in the nonprofit world was on the horizon. And Dan, you and I have known each other for a while, and I have been saying this for thirteen years: is that nonprofits have to adapt. the uh, The philanthropic world is changing. Um, nonprofits have to look at sustainability and funding beyond foundations and donors and grantors. Um, I'm a firm believer, to say that one more time with a strong and bold voice, that, um, that a social enterprise is almost absolutely necessary as long as you're going to be in the nonprofit world. I mean, for the first time in years, um, we have seen a decline in donor dollars. I know that we still raise $3 billion in charitable contributions, you know, uh, across the country um, last year. But that is declining. It was almost a 4% decline in 2023. And I think that's going to be become a trend uh, for at least a little while because the donor population the boomers are aging out, and you have to be um, aware of the new donor base that you're looking to, which are the millennials. And they give differently, and they give from the heart. They don't give because their parents gave. They don't give because it's the right thing to do. They give because of the heart, and they have specific causes. And you have to figure out what those causes, what those causes are. And that's one of the reasons we're looking at a social enterprise model uh, to carry us forward for another 128 years. Now, when you talk social enterprise, uh, go into that a little bit. What does that, what does that mean for the organization? 
it means that we will have a, a for-profit arm of the organization, a continuous funding stream that is not fickle. You know, uh, donors and foundations, uh, contractors change their focus and the way they distribute money from time to time. As long as we have a sustainable funding system, whether that's through a counseling center or a coaching center or a combination of both, uh, and we're, we're raising our own revenue that has no strings attached to it, then we can continue to provide services in a healthy and robust way. Gotcha. And so is that your um, social enterprise, a counseling center? An expansion of what we are currently do, but branching out um, and doing it for uh, for pay, whether it's insurance or Medicare, Medicaid billing, a uh, combination of all of, you know, all of those. But we think we can have a greater social impact if we develop a, a, a for-profit arm that will support the nonprofit arm. Sure. No, that makes sense. You talked about change you know, in the in the philanthropic and the nonprofit world, especially f- as an agency, as a provider of services, um, obviously COVID had a huge impact on on all that. Um, and while a lot of elements of the world are back to pre-COVID type things, what's been the lasting impact or the biggest thing that you saw that came about from COVID as it relates to the way that you provide services today? I think one of the biggest ways is in the residential housing uh, component of what we have done for 128 years. Um, the referral systems dried up. Um, people were afraid to live in a more of a communal you know, setting. And really, uh, one of the most determining factors was the inability to keep staff and to retain staff and retain staff that uh, were qualified and wanted to work with a, a really tough population. It sounds cool to say that you're going to work with trauma survivors until you get in there and you hear the stories. And some people can't lead those stories at work. And that was a really tough thing for us. Yeah. Compartmentalization there is a, is a difficult to, it's a it's a difficult thing for a lot of folks, and when you're dealing with it at that level, um, I can only imagine you know the the issues that that pop up that way. Um, let's take a step back, and you mentioned earlier, um, you know, partnering with other nonprofits and that type of thing. And I know that's long been a, something that Providence Place uh, provide prides itself on is you know doing that sort of thing. Um, what what do you see as the advantages and then maybe some of the disadvantages uh, within that, you know, within that partnering with other organizations? Well, I think one of the most significant advantages to me is that is what uh, foundations particularly are looking for. They're looking for greater social impact. And uh, most of the time, that's greater social impact is going to come through uh, partnerships or collaborative efforts. And, you know, that's just... No one profit can do it all. And we don't want to go in and duplicate services or step on, um, you know, an agency uh, who is already providing a certain service. But if somebody isn't providing parenting, then we can step in and do do that. If they are providing parenting but, but can't provide formula or diapers or sippy cups or whatever, we can do that. And so it's a complimentary addition for other nonprofits, we can provide what other nonprofits can't. And other nonprofits can provide what 
what we can't. Uh, I was telling you a little bit about the, um, you know, we're providing counseling for employees for another local nonprofit. They don't provide counseling. We do. We have licensed therapists and we provide counseling. So it's a win-win situation for both of us. We get the skill set and practice and notoriety, pride um, of providing therapeutic services, and they get a workforce who is more stable and will see less turnover. Very good. So what are some of the things that – you don't have to mention any names here, but what are some of the things that, again, maybe looking back on it, you wish you had gone on, gone in with uh, eyes wide open or something that you didn't know before you began this process of partnering? You know, I think it is about the level of having a MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, or what the, a contract might look like. You know, that was a new – endeavor for us several years ago, and we had to work our way through learning the uh, ins and outs of how to do that. So both, and it's not that we lost or they lost, is that both agencies or multiple agencies um, won. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the agency won, but the services to the clients of individual agencies were served in a way that they had never been served before. And we had to figure that out, some of the legalities um, of that and the detail um, around around some of that. Um, you know, I think everybody, every CEO of a nonprofit needs to have marketing skills and they need to have, um, you know, some um, financial acuity <laughs> in the, you know, in there. And they have to have detail. And a lot of uh, people who work in nonprofits are the touchy-feely people, and uh, they don't always have the financial skill set or the detailed skill set that is necessary. I've been fortunate enough to surround myself with people who have those skill sets. I can be the dreamer. I can continue to do the visionary leader. I can continue to do that, but I couldn't do all of that. I couldn't be a visionary leader, the detailed person, the marketing person. Um, but you have to be willing to let go and let others surround you and uh, let them take roles and responsibilities that are not your strong suit. Yeah. So in terms of as you're looking at just the overall dynamics in the nonprofit space today um, and We've already talked about the the things that uh, Providence Place has gone through over the years. If you could, you know, step into a, a future five years or ten years from now, what do you think the big changes are going to be? What do you think the big things are going to be that uh, these could be new directions that we haven't seen yet, or you know, the continued uh, movement in a direction that we're already going? Um, I, I think there are several uh, several things. I think nonprofit leaders have to take on the role of risk and innovation. You you can't do business like we've always done business before. You can't uh, just have direct mail, you know, to bring in donors because the donor world is changing. I've already mentioned that. But at some point, nonprofit leaders have to say, we can't do it like we've always done it. There has to be a level of risk and innovation. And I don't mean harmful risk. I mean, kind of an oops. You know, if I didn't do that, I, sh I don't want to look back five years and say, I wish we had done that. I want to say, mm, we tried it. 
It didn't work, but we learned something from that. And so moving forward, we're going to tweak that and we are going to get there. I mean, I think that's the risk and innovation that I'm really, that I'm really talking about. I think social enterprise has to be explored. It's not going to be for everyone, but it is something that Providence Places is looking at. I've been preaching that for 13 years and I can see it now. I can almost grasp that, uh, you know, for that. Um, and I think that that is, um, board development around that. Nonprofits can no longer do board like they have done board, you know, in the past. We have to develop those boards that are willing to take some risk and, um, put themselves out there. And if you fail, it's not failing backwards. It's failing forwards. And you can only, the only time failure is failure is if you don't learn something from that and apply what you learned. Uh, I think that those are some of the biggest things. Um, I think that um, also, you know, for me, I think it is that um, we really have to look at foundations and figure out what partnerships they are looking for. It's partnerships are partnerships and collaborations are collaborations, but what is what are the true partnerships out there? Um, and I believe that expansion of that coaching counseling you know center that we're looking at is really going to be the springboard for us in collaboration around that. Very good. Well, there's a lot of exciting things going on. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to make sure that we touch on, Judith? You know, Dan, I don't think so. I think we've had some really good uh, questions. I hope that from my perspective, that people hear the passion for nonprofit work in my voice, passion for Providence Place, and the excitement for the future. And if someone wants to come alongside and uh, get to know Providence Place better, what's the best way for them to reach you? There's two ways. The phone number is 210-696-2410. Or we also have info at provplace.org. And that's just our general information um, you know, email, and somebody watches that every day, and they will respond. Okay. So I really want to thank Judith Bell for being here today. It's been my pleasure to get to uh, get to highlight Providence Place, an organization that's near and dear to my heart. And I hope that uh, those who have listened today, if it's resonated with you, that I hope you'll reach out to them either at that phone number, 210-696-2410, or at info at provplace.org. This is Dan Rebman reminding everybody on behalf of uh, Philanthropy SA, thanks for joining us and just reminding you to do well so you can do good. Thank you for joining us at Philanthropy SA. We hope you found something to inspire you during today's conversation. If you know organizations and people who are making an impact in the community, we would love to hear about it. Until next time, do well so you can do good.